Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Um, go ahead, if you would, and pull out your, uh, your worksheet, listening guide, whatever you call that thing. Um, we're going to jump into that in just a second. We've been in a series this summer called Collide. We're going to bring it to an end today, not in the way I had originally imagined. Uh, I had really uh, kind of laid out that we were going to close today's uh, the series with a passage from Luke chapter 7, where Jesus encounters a woman who is filled with despair. Uh, she was a widow. Her only son had died. Um, and Jesus and his disciples encounter her during the funeral procession. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, is grieved in his spirit over the suffering of this widow, um, her, the despair that she's in. And so he raises her son from the dead. This power, this hope runs into despair. There's this incredible collision. And uh, as I was studying, uh, just looking at different passages about hope and in preparation for that message, it became really, really clear that I wasn't supposed to use that passage, that I was supposed to um, use the passage that we're going to look at, Romans chapter 8, which isn't necessarily a, a collision with Jesus personally, but yet yeah, is. Um, as you'll see here in a little bit, I, I do believe. So we're going to be looking in Romans chapter chapter 8 today that, that we just read. Now, I, I made that decision, really kind of finalized it last Sunday evening. And it was before I had any earthly idea that, you know, we were going to kind of be in the skirting ex... Uh, Excapade, maybe that's what I want to say, with um, Dorian and, uh, you know, all that kind of comes along with this. So I, 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 I didn't realize that was going to kind of be in our face. And I realized that this morning it would be easily to be distracted by the storm. Some of you may be concerned. Some of you may even be a little despairing over the storm. I know people who survived Hugo, um, lived through that, kind of get a little antsy when something like this kind of stirs up. And so here's the, here's the question for the day, and it's this. Where's your hope? Or what is your hope in? Might be a better way to say it. Now, I don't ask you that simply because there's this storm in the Atlantic. I believe that is actually one of the most important and fundamental questions of life. And it's something that we need to ask and answer and then live in. What, what is your hope? Where, where is your hope? What, what are you placing your hope in? Again, I think it's one of the most important questions ever because I've, I've come to believe, I've come to see that what you put your hope in determines so much about your life right now. In, in the here and now. In fact, I, I've jotted down a few observations that I've made over my 37 years in ministry. Things that I've seen when people put their hope in the wrong things, things kind of go bad. And so I want to give you some of these observations. This is kind of Joe Think. Um, I, I, I know that. I believe they're rooted in scripture. Um, but it, uh, So I want to kind of ask it this way um, or, or tell you this way, things I've observed. First is this. What we put our hope in becomes the soil from which our temperament grows. It becomes a soil from which our temperament grows. See, what we put our hope in can give us joy. It can fill you with peace. No matter what circumstances you're going through, no matter what's raging around you. But if you put your hope in the wrong thing, it can lead to a lot of stress. It can lead to depression and despair. Especially if it's hope placed in something that can get stripped away. Then it can steal with it your joy. It can kind of like that, that bird came along and snatched it. It, it, can, it can just rip it from you if, it's, if your hope is placed in, in, in something that can be stripped away. So in many ways, what we put our hope in each day, what we've learned to put our hope in, determines our temperament. It, it becomes a foundation for the way the world, the people in your life, experience your personality. It just really sets the mood for that. Second thing that I've observed is what we hope in directs the mission of our life. 
It really kind of is like a rudder for what becomes your life's purpose. Ultimately, what you put your hope in is what you begin to live for. Whatever your hope is in is what you live for. Another way to say it is whatever you're living for primarily, that's what your hope is in. Now, now just kind of think about this. Just, I believe that if I was allowed to observe your life up close, not for a long period of time, maybe a week, I believe that without you knowing, I believe that I could tell you what you're living for, what your hope is in. Some people put their hope in money. Because they're living for it. But making money becomes their primary purpose. The, I, I have met some people who have put their hope in marriage. They're, they're hoping to be married one day and thinking that that will fix all of their struggles or disappointments in life. Others are, are waiting on children. Some people are living for good health and, and longevity in, in, in this earth. So they, they put their, their, their lives, they pour in, into that. But the challenge that so many of us are going to face is when we put our hope in the wrong things is inevitably when it gets stripped away and it's going to happen that we crash and burn. And Paul says, he's inviting us in what we're reading today in Romans 8 that we put our hope in a living hope that does not die. That we put, you know, our hope, this, this thing that determines so much of the way we live and experience life now, we put it in something better. Last observation about hope is this. What we hope in will actually regulate our capacity to press on. It, 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 it significantly impacts our ability, our capacity to endure. Many of you know this firsthand. Many of you know it, 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 that, you know, it's not a matter of if challenges are going to come. It's just when they're coming. And so when it happens, whether the challenge leads to despair or not depends on what you put your hope in. Because if you've put your hope in something that is temporal, temporary, it can and eventually will be stripped away. And those challenges of life then kind of lead you down this path of despair and hopelessness. But if you put your hope in something that is outside of this life, something beyond that, it, it, it cannot be stripped away. Then your capacity to press on doesn't change no matter what you face, no matter what challenge you come because it'll give you a strength that you could never have if it was placed in something temporal. And so Paul writes about this in lots of places. Um, back in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes about a hope that doesn't disappoint. And he says there's only one hope, only one that will never disappoint you. You know, he doesn't say it's technology. You know, um, if you've ever invested a lot in, you know, your computer and then have it crash on you, um, you, you know that you're going to be disappointed. If you've, uh, if you've ever tried to invest in the newest educational model, and a lot of people do that, and they get eventually disappointed. Some people, you know, pour themselves and their hope into material things. I don't understand why, but there are people who do pour themselves into politicians. You know, just put their hope in there. It, religion, even a religion eventually is going to let you down probably big time. And Paul says there's only one hope that doesn't disappoint. And that hope is in a person. It, it's, in, it's in the person and his name his name is Jesus. And here's what's really cool. He's here this morning. He's present in this place. And he's ready to change the course of anyone's life, everyone's life, who's willing to let him be their primary hope. See, everything else we put our hope in can be stripped away. But there's living hope and his name is Jesus Christ. So in Romans 8, Paul, he's exhorting us, he's pleading with us to put our hope, he says. He, and he starts this way in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what you're going through right now, is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The, the glory that's coming. I like the way the NIV translates it, the phrase that says, I consider that our present sufferings, our present Sufferings. Now that's a very kind of general statement, kind of generic in terms. It doesn't, doesn't carry a lot of emotion to it. But if you attach something personal 
to it that changes the game. You know, if you could, if you could today, before our time together is over, kind of finish this sentence, it will actually help you think about hope. If you can identify, what is my present suffering? Paul used this broad general description, you know, but we could fill in the blank with something very personal. Very personal. For instance, it, maybe it's personal for you right now that you're wrestling with something health-related. Maybe that's a struggle that you're in, something health-related, or, or the health of someone that you love. Maybe, maybe your struggle or suffering right now is, is of a financial nature. And, and let me just say this. In your, in your newsletter this morning, there's a list of all kinds of really great classes that are about to start on, um, on the 15th of, of September. One of those is financial peace. So if, if it's financial uh, kind of suffering that you're in right now, not only is there hope, but there's also help. And we want to provide you with that help and hope you'll take advantage of that. You know, if, if it's not financial, maybe your present suffering, maybe it's relational. Don't look at them. Don't elbow them. But it's possible that your present suffering is seated next to you right now. You know? Sometimes that's just, that's just true. But what we need to do is identify... When Paul uses this phrase, present suffering, this broad general term, we need to be able to identify it and personalize it because it will make hope even better. And, and here's the truth. Some of you are saying, well, I don't want to name it because then, you know, I, I, I kind of give it power and, you know, I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to know. Everybody has present suffering. You can walk down a sidewalk in your neighborhood and hear the way a husband and wife talk to each other. Present suffering. You can hear the way in, in, in the grocery store. You can hear the way a parent will curse a child. Present suffering. Present suffering is all around. You, you may know of a neighbor who recently got a foreclosure notice. Or maybe it's the, the, the checkout lady at the, the, the cashier at the grocery store that you frequent. And you find out she's a, a, a single mom who can barely make ends meet. Or maybe you're on a college campus in a dorm room now. And you've just discovered that uh, one of the people down the hall from you is battling an eating disorder. Or a co-worker you just discovered is, is, is battling depression. See, everybody has these present sufferings. They're, they're all around us. And it's important for us to understand clearly how God's word approaches this issue of present suffering. Because here's the deal. Far too often Christians give off this false impression. You know, we, we just give off this false impression that if you would just become a Christian, then there would be no present sufferings. You know, that God would just kind of smooth all the rough patches out. He's going to take care of all the little details. There'll be no challenges or struggles. And if you came to Christ in that environment, then there was probably a moment in your Christian walk when present suffering showed up and you went, time out. Time out. You know, I, I didn't think this was supposed to happen. You know, I thought I was on team God and now, you know, he was supposed to handle all of this stuff. Friends, the Bible never, nowhere does it ever teach that if you become a Christian, it will always only be calm seas and smooth sailing. Storms won't touch you. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is just the opposite. Jesus himself said, it's recorded in John 16, in this world... The world that you live in, there's going to be tribulation. There, there's going to be, you'll have trouble. And so Paul uses this language of present suffering. It, it's just a given for him. You know, there's going to be present suffering. There's going to be challenges. Do you know what those challenges reveal? They reveal the foundation of your hope. What you put your hope in. Last week, we looked at Jesus' closing remarks, his concluding remarks from the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And there we read about two houses. And when the storms came, it tells us that one house had been built on the rock. It revealed its foundation. And another house had been built on sand. It revealed its foundation. And the house built on sand collapsed. Because it wasn't built on something that was strong and, and had strength. And the truth is, storms in life will just reveal 
what it is your foundation of hope is built upon. What, what is it built upon? Some of you have heard me talk about before. I mean, he, th this little book was one of those that God used to kind of help mark my life and thinking. It was written by a, a man by the name of uh, Viktor Frankl. It's entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And, and Viktor Frankl was uh, a Jewish Austrian. He was uh, a trained psychoanalyst. And so he kind of looked at this world this way. And uh, he, was, he was held captive in Auschwitz. And while he was there, he could not help, because it was his training, he couldn't help but observe what was going on among the, those being held captive in these horrid conditions. And he writes this book, and he said that oftentimes these prisoners would one day reach a, a place of, of hopelessness. And in this hopeless situation, uh, because they were being brutalized, they would actually become brutal. That they would, their hearts would be hardened when what they hoped for had been stripped away and they became hardened themselves and they would become harsh to one another because of the present suffering that they found themselves going through. And some of you have met people like this who have been in intense suffering and they just kind of grow cold-hearted, maybe even become harsh to you and others around you. They don't, they don't trust the, the hearts or the intentions of others. They don't see good in, in any situation and they just, they become hopeless. Another thing that Frankel said that, that happened to some of other prisoners would, they would do okay for just a while, but then suddenly they would just give up. And I want to read to you um, his description of how that, what that looked like when it actually occurred. He said this, he said, usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp, camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but we feared it for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or to wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no beatings, no threats had any effect. They just lay there, hardly moving. He's saying that was one way that people who had lost all hope uh, responded in, in hopelessness. Because they had put their hope in something that was temporary. It had gotten stripped away. And so they gave up. They, they, they just quit. And some of you might be in a season of your life where you just feel that way. You just, you just feel like you want to lay there. You, you did not want to be here today. I talked to with one lady that came to me after the first service and said, I was standing in the shower this morning. I was weeping. I didn't want to come. And God just said, you got to go. You may feel that way today. You may just would rather be home vegging out in front of the TV. You, 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 did, you didn't want to come here. You feel like there's no hope for whatever you filled your blank in as your, your present suffering. It just seems pointless to you. And what that means is, whatever you've put your hope in has been stripped away. Frankel also wrote about another group of people who made it through the imprisonment. And the way they made it through is they had put their hope in what they believed would happen after, after they were set free. And some of them believed that what was going to happen was that their fortunes would be restored, that their families would be restored, that life would get back to the way it had been before Nazi occupation. And one of the things that Frankel wrote about was when that didn't happen, because it didn't happen, so many of them went into despair. And a year or two after they had been set free, there was kind of this rash of suicides. Because their hope had been put in something that wasn't real. It wasn't based on reality. But Frankel went on to say that those who actually overcame the Auschwitz experience and lived past it, did it because they had fixed their reference point on something that was not of this world. They had fixed their reference point on something beyond this world. Something that was out of the grasp of death and destruction and despair. Frankel wrote that life in a concentration camp tears open people's souls and shows the depth of its foundation. See, the present suffering always, always reveals the truth about what our hope is in. It, it will always do that. 
And if your hope is not in something eternal, if it's in something temporal, that's not good. And so Paul talks about this present suffering and the challenges that Christ followers are going to have. But it will make all the difference in the world if your hope is in Jesus and in the heaven that he has promised to bring you into for everyone who belongs to him. So let's walk back through what we read earlier. Verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the free of the glory of the children of God. Here's what Paul says. He says, this is what we must do. You must, you, you, your, your present sufferings, you've got you've to name them. You've got to, and I hope they're highlighted in your head that, that you know what it is. Paul says, I want you to compare whatever that is for you. That personal present suffering. I want you to compare what you are going through right now to the experience of what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus. That's what Paul says I want you to do. I want you to compare whatever it is to what it's going to be like to be in Jesus' presence for all eternity, ruling and reigning with him. And Paul says it's not worth comparing. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's hand down, no comparison. He says, you know, the sufferings, that I, don't compare to the glory that awaits you. It's not even worth comparing. Lee Strobel, great, great writer. Case for Christ is a great book. The Case for, uh, done a lot of great, great works. He, he uses an illustration that I love that helps me kind of get my mind around it and I hope it does you. And, and it, it goes something like this. Um, let's imagine that it's the first day of a new year. Okay, so for, just, just for our sake today, it's January the 1st of 2020. Okay? And it's going to be the worst day of your life. You wake up with an abscess tooth and the only thing that's going to take care of it is an emergency root canal. And so it gets arranged. You, you go in for the, the emergency root canal. Excuse me. And halfway through the root canal, the anesthesia wears off. And you are in horrid pain. But you make it through. And so you, you leave the, the office, the oral surgeon's office, and you get in your car and you begin driving and the pain is nagging. You kind of close your eyes for a second while you're driving and you get in a wreck and you total your car. Now, you're not harmed, but your car is totaled. And so uh, suddenly it dawns on you, you have totaled the other person's car, you're, you're at fault. So you get out and as you're approaching their car door to check on them, you realize this is your spouse. You have not only totaled your car, you've totaled your, your spouse's car. It, it could happen. You know, you, you could do this. And so you, you finally, you know, they tow the cars and you finally make it back home and you get home and there's a foreclosure notice nailed to your front door. And as you're reading the foreclosure notice, you get a text from your boss and it says, don't bother coming in on January 2nd. Um, over the holidays, your position was terminated. Without somebody dying, worst day ever. Okay, just worst day ever. And so that's how 2020 starts for you. But then January 2nd comes along and you're awakened that morning by a text from your only living cousin. And it scares you to death and you think, I don't want to read it, but you read it. And it says, you've got an email you have got to open. Go, go read your email. And you think, after what happened yesterday, there is no way I'm going to read the email. And you open it, and it's regarding your, great, your, your greatest uh, uncle, who has no, no heirs, no, no children of their own. And, and you and your first cousin, was like, they were, you were like the apple of his eye. And um, this guy is wealthy beyond un, you know, belief. And, you know, and it's from his attorney. So you're convinced this uncle that you love dearly has passed. 
But you go ahead and, you know, after yesterday, you know, it could only get worse, right? And so you start reading the attorney's email and it says um, that your uncle, who loves you so very, very much, who's so very, very wealthy, has decided to give you your inheritance before he passes because he wants to see you enjoy what he's going to give you. And so um, if you will come to the office today uh, at, after our meeting, at the end of that meeting, uh, $79 million will be transferred to your account. And so you get dressed and you go. And at 11 a.m., you show up for the meeting. At 11.45, after the meeting ends, you have $79 million in your bank account now that you didn't have before you got to that meeting. And so you leave there and you drive and you buy yourself the car of your dreams. And you buy your spouse the car of their dreams. And then you go driving around looking at homes that you want to build. And so over the next month, you draw plans and you start building the home of your dreams and you, you move into it. And you start thinking about what good you could do with your money. And so you, uh, you know this doctor. He's a research doctor. He kind of uh, works in, at MUSC and in, in the Cancer Center. And you, you decide that you're going to go in business with him. And you guys go in business. And you're not really sure what, what the whole business does. But you discover a cure for cancer. All cancer everywhere. And so it's just good and more money comes into your company and um, you, you hear about this Tahitian island, you know, and, and you buy this island and the home that you were building finally is finished and you move into your new home and uh, you can't believe it, but the, the next day after you move in, Taylor Swift comes by. You didn't know she lived in the neighborhood. Taylor Swift comes by with a goodie bag and, and says, I would love for you to join me to sing karaoke tonight why don't you come and so you and Taylor Swift hang out and sing some karaoke a little bit and you know it's just like incredible and you get to the end of 2020 December 31st of 2020 and you're 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 there and you you're at a party and a friend comes up to you that you haven't seen in about 10 years and they have no earthly idea what happened from January 2nd on but they had read a Facebook post about somebody who kind of recounted what happened to you on January 1st. And so they, they ask you, you know, so how's your year been? And you said, you, you won't believe it, you know? D do you want to go spend a week on my Tahitian Island or do you want to hang out and sing karaoke with, you know, Taylor Swift this week, you know? It, you just wouldn't believe it. And you, you go on talking about your year and they say, wow, you know, what about what happened on January 1st? You never mentioned that. You say, what happened on January 1st? Because you don't remember it. Because in light of what's gone on the other 364 days of the year, no comparison. Absolutely no comparison to the joy that you are now living on December 31st of that same year. It's just, it, you, you can't get, get over what's going on. And so you begin talking to this person and celebrating the goodness. You remember what happened vaguely on January the 1st, but there, there's just no comparison. Friends, that's the perspective that living from eternity can bring us now. If we will live with our hope firmly rooted in eternity in those, those 364 days instead of that one. See, even, even if your life here is filled with chronic pain for 75 years and you suffer illness after illness, it's difficult. When you've been in heaven for 522,499,627 years... And somebody comes up to you and says, what's your existence been like? You're going to go, oh man, it's incredible. I hang out with Jesus, man. We, we, we went and hiked the Rockies last week and, you know, we went hand gliding and it was, it was incredible. We worship. It was, it's just, it, it's incredible. There's no sickness and disease and people that I, I, I love, I'm hanging out with. It's just, it's so incredible. Well, what about those 75 years on old earth. What 75 years? 
What are you talking about? You know where you were chronically ill from birth and... Oh man, I've forgotten about those. See, compared to eternity, Paul says this present suffering is not worth comparing. There, there's just, there's no comparison. It's not even, even kind of worth talking about it. And Paul is not denying the present suffering. He's just saying that when you compare it to the glory of heaven in the presence of Jesus, no comparison. There's a, a, a lady that, whose writings I have drawn a great deal of strength from. Her name is Teresa of Avila. And she's a, she was a Catholic noblewoman who believed that God was calling her to live a monastic life. And so she did that. But much of her experience as an adult was filled with incredible loss and a great deal of chronic illness. And she gets to the end of her life after that experience. And this is one of the things that she wrote. She says, in light of heaven... The worst suffering on this earth will seem to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient motel. You ever been in an inconvenient motel? Not necessarily a dirty, trashed one, but just, a, just an inconvenient, just one night. See, you can even smile in the midst of an inconvenient experience. Why? Because you know. You know, you know where you're going. You'll know where you'll be after this one difficult night. There's, there's no comparison. And Paul says that needs to be our perspective on heaven. We need this. We, we, this, we, we need this. I'm about to get in trouble with some of you and that's okay. I'm sorry. I, I'm not intending to. I just want, want to be real for a second here. Sometimes when I pray with people who are very sick, some may be on the, the edge of, of dying. Sometimes I get a little frustrated with people that are praying for them because they, they pray as if the worst thing that could ever happen was that this person who is a follower of Jesus would die and go spend eternity with Jesus now. Now, please hear me say this. It is not wrong to pray for people's healing. It is right. It is good. It is not wrong to stay here and work for the kingdom of God and to, to live for the glory of God. Those are good things. It's okay to pray for that for people that you love. But sometimes, folks, we cross a line into idolatry of this life here and now because we don't live with a true hope for heaven. Paul, when he was writing his letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, writes about a tension that he came under because he, he, he realized that he, he, he longed to be with God and it was good and it was best. But he came to understand that it was also good for him to stay here now. But that was better, Paul said. That, that was going to be so much better. And we need to live in the face of our present suffering, believing that that is going to be so much better because it will make a difference in our hearts in the here and now. It will change the game. And I want to read the kind of closing part of this passage, starting in verse 22. I want to read it to you now from the New Living Translation. It's going to come up on the screen because I like the way it frames this. It says this, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us all our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. Verse 25. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and we must wait confidently. I want you to go back and pay attention to, to verse 22. The, the metaphor that, that Paul tells us we need to use when we're thinking about our present suffering in this life. And I'm about to get in trouble with one certain gender in the house right now. I know. Um, so ladies, don't be haters. 
Okay, this is, Paul used this, this metaphor, this, this childbirth metaphor. And, and let me say before I go any further, I've never experienced either of these. I've never experienced childbirth, and I've never experienced kidney stones. But I'm told, and I was told by a, another lady that came up to me after the service, she, she's given birth to four kids, she's had one kidney stone. And she said the kidney stone was worse. Don't, don't be a hater. Okay? Don't be a hater. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing about childbirth and the kidney stone. They both, let's say they're exactly equal in pain. Okay? I, I know women who after they've gone through the pain of childbirth, a short while later will say, let's do this again. Let's have another one. I have never heard anybody say after passing a kidney stone, maybe God will bless us with another one. You know, have you? Nobody says that. Why? Because the outcome was different. The outcome, you had this precious life. Or you had this rock razor shard, you know? There's no comparison. It's what Paul is saying. There, there, there's just no, there's no comparison to the present suffering that you're going through. Bertrand Russell, some of you will recognize that name. He was a 20th century British philosopher who was a devout atheist. Wrote lots of books. He's a, he was actually a, a brilliant mind. But wrote lots of books. One of those that he wrote was Why I'm Not a Christian. He was actually antagonistic towards Christianity. When he was 81 years old, at the end of his days, his health was just about all gone. He was interviewed by a British broadcast network interviewer. And he asked this question, what do you have now that, now that you're coming to the end of your life, what do you have to hang on to when death is so close? And th these were Russell's words of response back. He says, I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. Grim, unyielding despair. I hate that for him. I appreciate his honesty, but, but I, just, I just hate that. He had put his hope in the world and everything that he had put his hope in was stripped away from him in those moments. It's all gone. And he says, I have nothing to hold on to. It is, it is grim. And Paul is saying, if you put your hope in anything but Jesus Christ, that's what you have to look forward to. Even in this present suffering, even though it's real and you need to name it and be honest about it, if your hope is in Jesus, it's going to be like childbirth. It'll, it'll be over and then there's something better. So what we need to be captured by, Paul explains in verse 23, is the strength that comes from the hope that we can have in Christ. As we navigate through our sufferings, he tells us we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul describes this. And I love this picture. He, he says it's a foretaste of the future glory. It's kind of like, it's, it's coming attractions, baby. The Holy Spirit in you. Verse 26 says, and the Holy Spirit helps us what? In our weakness. Because you have them. We all have them. You know, you need to read that. Grab, grab hold of that here this morning. You have weakness. The Holy Spirit helps you. This is not a, well, I hope the Holy Spirit might help. Or this isn't, wouldn't it be really great? It, it just simply says, the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit helps you. He goes on to say, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. When you're in, when you're in these sufferings, you may not even know how to talk about them. You may not even know how to pray. The Holy Spirit does. And the Father who knows all hearts knows the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us as believers in harmony with God's own will. So the Holy Spirit's praying for you. He's sorting things out that you can't. Friends, it's good to have the Holy Spirit praying for you, interpreting your pain to God. 
What this says is the Holy Spirit is a divine translator. This incredible translator. He speaks to God on our behalf. He connects our hearts to God's. And I just love that image. Because even if you can't know and, and, and explain the, the suffering that you're in to such a degree, the Holy Spirit can. You may only be able to pray sometimes, God help. That may be all you can get out. And when, when you get to that place where you stop praying, you know what happens? Holy Spirit picks up. Holy Spirit starts praying. He understands the mess and the brokenness that you're in. Even when you don't, can't describe it, he's, he's putting the pieces together. He's taking from them to God. And so it's okay to say, God, I don't even know what to pray right now. Holy Spirit kicks in. He, he begins praying for you that way. He's talking to God. He's, he's the divine translator of what's going on in you. Th this passage became clear to me in the last few years of my life, clearer than it has ever come before. I, I've, I've had the, the honor on a, a couple of occasions in the last couple of years to, 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 to teach and preach in two different countries. And, and I have people translate because I can't do that for myself and I've had experience where one of the translators didn't know me didn't know me till I met her the other one is sitting right over there her name's Julie Welch and I'm telling you there's something different when somebody who doesn't really know you translates you you know what I know what was happening they were getting the information out there but Julie, Julie knows my heart because she's heard me ramble on more than she should have to Sunday after Sunday. She knows what I'm jazzed about. She, know, she gets me. And so, I, first of all, let me say this. I cannot imagine at all what it would have to be like to translate me. That's got to be horrible for anybody. But she does. And here's what, here's what I've seen happen. The, the other translator does a good job, gives the information as, as I present it. But there have been a couple of times when Julie, I would say something and she would kind of look at me. And then she would have like a little smile and then she would start talking. And she would talk longer than I had talked. And I knew what was happening. Especially when we were in Ecuador. Julie was communicating my heart because my words didn't and so she was saying it in such a way that the people that she she grew up in Ecuador she knew the culture she understands the people she was communicating my heart when I didn't have the right words does that make sense that's what the Holy Spirit does for you in the presence of God we ain't smart enough to translate our own hearts but the Holy Spirit is. And that is a gift that you have. And it's something that your hope is, needs to be rooted in. Because God is at work here. And so the Holy Spirit is praying. He's, he's communicating what's going on. I just love that, that so much. And the word that if you, could, if you could hear, actually hear the Holy Spirit talking to the Father. The Bible says, Paul uses this word. It would sound like groaning. Groaning. Other ways that phrase gets translated is strong heartfelt desire. The Holy Spirit has a strong heartfelt desire to communicate you clearly when you can't find words. It goes on. Another translation is begging in tears. The Holy Spirit is begging with tears in the presence of God for you because he wants your heart connected to the purposes and power of your heavenly father. That's what the Holy Spirit longs for. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And it just, it shows how much the Holy Spirit, the living God that's in you, if you know Christ, loves and cares for you. He's groaning. He's begging with tears. He has this strong, heartfelt desire for your heart to be connected to the heart of your Father. For your life to be aligned with God's will. If you go back, and I hope you will later this week maybe, soak through this passage again. There'll be two words. One of the things you do when you soap is you look for, you know, things that kind of repeat. Two words that'll come out. Hope will be one of them. The other word will be wait. Wait is repeated several times in this passage of scripture that we read. Verse 23 used it. It tells us that we wait eagerly. Verse 25 says we wait patiently and we wait confidently. But I want to go back to kind of to the beginning to verse 19. And it says this. For the creation waits with eager longing. Now yes, there are present sufferings. 
And yes, if we put our hope in the wrong thing, it'll lead to despair. But when we put our hope in Jesus, we will do this. We will wait with the whole universe for God's glory to one day be revealed. And if we're, if we're captured by that, by that vision of God's glory as the Bible shows us, reveals it, then what happens is we begin to have hearts that long with eagerness. There's this eager longing. I looked at some other translations of that phrase, eager longing. This is, this is the way it translates. NIV says, eager expectation. CEB says, breathless with anticipation. NCV, waiting with excitement. I never heard of WNT. It's a New Testament translation. But it says, gazing eagerly as with an outstretched neck, baby. You're just trying to get your head and your face into the glory of God. You've got an outstretched neck. You, you have this incredible longing. You can't wait for that. You're in the suffering. You've got a present suffering going on, but in your present suffering, you've got a stretched neck because you're putting your face in the presence of God. That's where your hope is. You're breathless with excitement. What would this church be like if that were us. It would mark us. It would mark the people to your left and to your right and in front of you and behind you. It would transform us if we were those people. What, what would it do to our city if we were that church? Our stretch necks. Present sufferings. But our face is in the glory of God, man. It would be transformative. It would be un unbelievable. As long, far back as I can remember, every so often somebody will waste some money, government, on some new study about how weather alters your mood. Duh. Who doesn't know that? If there was ever a week where maybe the weather might be altering your mood be this week. But what if, what if a month ago you had booked a two-week vaca vacation out at Lake Tahoe and you were scheduled to fly out on Tuesday of next week. Now, I'm going to use this imaginarily for me that Kathy and I had done this months ago and we were going to meet our son Taylor and our daughter-in-law Rachel out there who we haven't got to see in quite a while yeah there's this Dorian thing happening but where's my mind Lake Tahoe baby I'm going to get to see my son we're going to go hiking around that lake it's going to be great we're going to go to some really nice restaurants. It's going to be incredible. There's present suffering. There's storms. But you've got to have a better future. You've got to have a vision there. You've got to have clarity so your hope can be there. And that's what Paul writes to us who believe and says, where's your hope? Where, where, where's your hope? Yes, they're suffering. Don't deny them. Name them. But they're not going to compare at all with the glory, the future that awaits you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your hope is in the presence of Jesus for all eternity in heaven. And you know where that's at right now? If you're a follower of Jesus... It's in your heart. It's where the Spirit of God lives. Storms, they're going, present suffering, it's happening. But in here you got hope. You have hope that's deeper and richer. And those things aren't even worth comparing. Just not even worth comparing. Let's pray. Let's pray. 
Father, we, we just come. Jesus, we, we come and thank you for the hope that we have in you. We so long for our confidence to be in you. Because when we wrap our heads around it and we give our heart over to it fully, we know you're the only hope that does not disappoint. It's you, Jesus, and you alone. But Jesus, we all must come in a moment like this and just confess the truth that it's, it's just so easy for us to let our hope be put in something else or someone else. And then inevitably it, it gets stripped away. God, would you help us? Would you give us the strength to become people who live with outstretched necks, people who are breathless with excitement because of who you are, because of what you have already done for us and because of what you have promised yet to do. And God, we say, we just say the truth about us. It's so easy when storms are around us, just kind of off the coast of our lives. It's easy in this present suffering, God, to forget. So God, we come saying we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength that we don't have? Would you root this hope deep within us so that we can live with eager anticipation, God, for the day when your full glory is revealed full on in us. And Father, I, I just pray for anybody in this room who right now their hope is in something other than Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, show them, enlighten them, illuminate their heart and mind so that they too would know they can have a hope that's bigger than this present suffering. You're a living hope, Jesus. And so I pray that we would be moved into that so much so that we, we come now to worship you as our living hope. We come to celebrate you. We come to give generously and sacrificially so that your name would be proclaimed throughout all of the earth and the good news of life in you would come so that the world could have hope. Our confidence is in you. Our hope is in you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.